Why are we so driven to holiness? What do we learn in that first lesson we had last week from Peter's first letter? We learned his subject is sanctification. Sanctification of the Christian, the word for sanctify and the word for holy in Greek is the same word. We could make up a new word this today and say it's about the holification of the individual, making the individual holy, making the church holy, the holification, that sanctification. This sanctification caused the Christian to live differently from the world around him or her. Three times in the first two chapters, Peter calls Christians exiles in the world. Following Christ, following Christ is a life of an outlier in the fallen world. We're exiles. We're strangers and outliers in a culture that's hostile to the way of Christ, hostile to God's word. We're not a people just trying to be odd. We are people born again, changed by the Holy Spirit. We don't go out into the day saying, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be odd from everybody. No, we go out into the world saying, I will follow Jesus. I will follow his word. I will follow the Holy Spirit. And if you follow him, if you follow his word and you follow him, you will live differently than the world around you. That's just the truth. Know this, and this is how we summed up last week. You are an exile. If you're a Christian, you are an exile. You're an alien. You're a stranger. You're a peculiar person in this world. It will be uncomfortable to be a Christian. It will be uncomfortable to seek holiness. It will be uncomfortable to seek to follow Jesus daily. If you're in junior high school or high school or college, if you're a businessman or businesswoman in Fayette County, if you're a contractor, an electrician, a plumber, if you're in agriculture or teaching, your vocation is not what makes you different from others as a Christian. You are living a different life simply following Jesus. Changed by the Holy Spirit. Indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So why is the Christian compelled? What drives us toward this holiness? This is not an easy mission. The mission of an outlier. The life of an exile. Sometimes it even leads to martyrdom. So what compels us to live this different life? What drives us? This is a question for the house this morning. We begin where we left off last week, not in 1 Peter. It's there on your scripture sheet, Hebrews 13. This is the verse we closed with right at the end. So Jesus suffered, Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus suffered, that dying on the cross, outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, that's our motive, therefore, let us go to him 
outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. What drives us to go outside the gate, outside the camp? Jesus, people, Jesus was on the town garbage dump. That's where he was, dying for our sin. The cross was socially and culturally outside the gate. It was not a place, it was not an acceptable place. It was not a place of honor. But that's where the writer of Hebrews tells us to go. And that cross is the center of our redemption. It's everything. That cross compels us to holiness. That's exactly what Peter is saying in his letter. Now let's look at it. Verse 17. Conduct yourselves. This is what he say to it, says to us this morning. Conduct yourselves with fear. We can translate that. I think a better translation of that is reverence. Reverence for Christ. Reverence for the cross. Conduct yourselves with reverence, with righteous fear throughout the time of your exile. Why? He gives the motive there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who though you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There is a theology section that is known as the person and work of Christ. In verses 18 through 21, Peter is saying that we are driven toward holiness by the person and work of Christ. We're driven because of what he did and who he is. And Peter begins with what Christ did. He doesn't begin with who he is. Look at verse 18, 17 and 18. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why, Peter? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefather, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus ransomed you, redeemed you from your former way of living, not with money, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood. Notice he didn't say just with the blood of Christ. He added the word, but with the precious blood of Christ. The word precious there is the key. Some of you have met my friend Scott Lauder and his wife, Lazan, from Inverness, Scotland. They have, been, they have been here. And he has a phrase, I was always amused at this. I didn't understand it at first. You see, when, and it's a phrase that they use in Scotland. When he sees something that, that I have, that he likes, he'll sometimes say, John, is that precious? What's he asking? Is that expensive? Is that expensive? It's a common phrase there. Peter is saying the blood of Christ is precious. It's the most that has been paid for anything in the entire history of the universe. Let me say that again. It's the most that has been paid for anything in the entire universe. 
when someone, when, when, when we love someone, the gifts that we give them have great meaning. They, those gifts are very significant. Sometimes I'm speaking with a husband and wife who are really struggling in their marriage. Maybe they're right next to getting a divorce. When I'm alone with the husband, I will ask him, do you love her? He tells me that he loves her. I ask him, does she know that you love her? Oh, certainly she knows. How does she know that you love her? What have you done that tells her you love her? He generally says, well, I I work and provide for the family. Okay. It's not a bad thing. But maybe you do that out of your own ego. Maybe your work is your first love and it's really satisfying to you. Maybe your self-esteem is so tied to your work and making money that your provision for your family is really about you and your reputation. What have you done specifically? Tell me what you've done specifically for your wife that tells her you love her. Well, I tell her I love her. That's good. Words mean something. But words can be cheap sometimes. And we come by lying quite naturally. Well, I show my affection physically. I hug her. I kiss her. I hold her. That's a good thing. Telling her you love her is a good thing. But that can be something that you just do in a mundane way, even to kiss her. And it can be something you do for your own gratification. And the husband will eventually say, what do you want me to do, John? What do you say? I gave her a pearl necklace last year for Christmas. Now we're getting somewhere. Was it expensive? How much did you pay for it? Why do you want to know that? The cost is relevant because if it was something you could easily afford, it would not necessarily tell her that you love her. I was speaking with a wife one time on a flight, and I just, I didn't know at that point she was a wife, but she had on a very beautiful ring, and I commented on the beauty of her ring. And she said her husband had given it to her. And I said, it must have been very, very expensive. She said it was, but she said it's not expensive to him, for him. And then she stopped and she said, I would rather have his love. So how can a husband tell his wife that he loves her? Words do mean something. Provision for needs does mean something. Gifts do mean something. But what did God say to husbands? Do you know very well in Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her. You want to know, you, you want your wife to know that you love her. You sacrifice yourself for her. Now, 
Let's get back to 1 Peter. Why did I tell you that? Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. That's what Peter was saying. He sacrificed himself for us. Do you, this, that passage in Ephesians is saying, husbands, do you provide for your wife sacrificially? Is there a constancy about your gifts that says, I'm always thinking of you? Does your wife look at what you give her and say, you know, that, that wasn't easy. That was expensive. He sacrificed to do that. Jesus, God was saying there's a continual sacrifice in the life of being a good husband. Who is the model for that? Jesus is. You know the passage, Romans 5.8. It's on your scripture sheet. But God shows his love for us. How? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sacrificed. Do you know what comes right before Romans 5.8? Romans 5, 6, and 7. Look at it. It's logic. For while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. When we were weak in our sins, Christ died for us. When we were rebellious and quite ugly, Christ died for us. He did not sacrifice himself because we're good. He didn't look and say, John Sartell's a pretty good guy. I'm going to die for him. What did he say? One will scarcely die for a righteous or a good person. But they absolutely won't die for someone who's not loyal and not trustworthy. They won't die for someone who's a constant enemy to them. That, folks, is the power of Christ's death. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A good wife can say, I've been devoted and a loving wife. I deserve my husband's love. And sacrifice. We can never say, ever even think, I deserved Christ to die for me. Now go back and read what Peter said again. Conduct yourselves with reverence throughout the time of your exile. Live holy lives in the world. Why? Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. We're driven to our sanctification. We're driven to live different lives because Jesus died for us. His life is precious to us. His sacrifice. Let me ask you this morning, personally, think about it right now. Is the blood of Jesus Christ precious to you? Does it affect the way you live? You know, God can give us everything we have. We're wearing nice clothes. We have houses and cars and homes. We have schools to go to. God can give us all of those things by fiat. He can just command and we have those things. They don't cost God anything. Our salvation, our justification cost him dearly. God is wealthy. He owns a universe. But dying for our sins was a sacrifice. The greatest price that has been paid for anything has been paid for you and for me. Think about that. Is the blood of Christ precious to you? If it is, it will drive you to holiness. Unholiness. Unholiness. Sin. Selfishness. Arrogance. Immorality. Cheating. Hate. Adultery. That belittles. Our sin belittles 
the blood of Christ. Our willful sin shouts to the world that the blood of Christ is a mundane thing to us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. If I had a brother, quote, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice of the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love that sin? Is the blood of Christ precious to you? If it is, it will change the way you live. It drives us to holiness. It's a powerful incentive. But Peter does not stop there with what Jesus did. He does not stop with the work of Christ. He then speaks of the person of Christ. And I didn't see this at first, but it's important. Stay with me. Who is the person that died for our sin? Who shed his blood in our stead? For the next minute or two, we're going to read a lot of scriptures from the Old Testament. But first, let's start with Peter. Who is the one who died for us? In verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. Those, Do you see those two verses trace Jesus, the Son of God, from before the foundation of the world to where he is now in glory? Just in those two verses. It speaks of him being the Son of God before the foundation of the world. It speaks to him becoming manifest, the incarnation, the Son of God becoming flesh. Next, Peter says he was raised from the dead and is in glory reigning. He's saying, consider, pause, take a pause, consider who died for you. Who is that on the cross? In Daniel 7, 13, we read, look at it with me. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and peoples and nations and languages. Who was he? That's the son of God and the son of man that was on that cross. Look at Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from Come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That is the baby that was born in Bethlehem. That's the man that hung on the cross. Isaiah said it this way when he looked at Christ. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the one, the wonderful. The mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. That's who was on the cross shedding his blood. This was the identity of the lamb. Isaiah 53, Isaiah said it this way. He was despised and rejected of men. As he looked on the cross, he was despised and rejected of men by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus says, conduct yourselves in a manner that says you will know you were ransomed by the blood of Christ. And by the way, look who this Christ is. He traces his identity through to the end. He comes, he ends with him from the foundation of the world, he ends with him in glory. We catch a scene of that, we catch that scene in Revelation 5 9, and they sang a new song, and they're singing to that one who hung on the cross, who shed his blood. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then this great crowd said, sings with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're counting the blood of Christ precious. Does this not drive us to holiness? Oh, we must close. But we have one more place to look as we come to the end. In the middle of the first chapter, Peter draws a picture that I wish someone would paint. I would love to see a great painting of this. In verses 10 through 12, he speaks of the Old Testament prophets writing about the sufferings of Christ, like Isaiah was saying in Isaiah 53 as he wrote about Calvary. Peter said these prophets that wrote these things, they searched. They said, what does this mean? What does this mean? How can he be the wonderful counsel of the mighty God and be this one suffering such indignity? How can that happen? The prophets longed to know the details. But then Peter closes the paragraph with this sentence. Things into which angels long to look. Here's the picture. Imagine the angels looking on the crucifixion from glory. Here's a whole chain of angels. And they're looking over each other. And they're watching. They're mesmerized by what's happening. They gaze at the crucifixion and wonder, what is this? What's happening? Now, that's, that's somewhat the way we look at Calvary, in awe and wonder. Except we now know what the angels did not know. We know he was the Lamb of God. This morning, as you said here, you know more than Isaiah did. You know more than David did. You know more than the angels knew at that point. We know the whole story, but we also have another perspective. Now listen, those angels are holy. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created those angels, but the Father did not give His Son to die for them. We have a relationship with Christ that even the angels do not have. Peter says to us, you exiles, 
you strangers, you outliers, conduct yourselves with reverence in this fallen world, knowing you were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. And who is this Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Lamb of God who is reigning in glory. That brings us to a great hymn of the faith, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded.